Legal Podcast. My name is Jean Kambuni and I am your host. On today's episode, we will talk about parental responsibility and child custody. Our guest is Ibrahim Alubala, an advocacy and child rights governance technical specialist at Save the Children. Welcome, Alubala. Thank you very much, Jean, and happy to be at GVA Legal Podcast. Thank you. Let's get straight into the episode. What is parental responsibility? Parental responsibility refers to the rights, the duties, the powers, responsibilities, and authority that a parent has towards their child, and not just the child, but also the child's property, because at times, you know, children can have their property. So all these rights, duties, responsibilities that uh, a parent wields over a child, I would amount to parental responsibility. You've spoken about a child having property. And um, I will say that legally, a child can enter into a contract even before they reach the age of majority. So before they're 18 years of age, they can enter into a contract, sometimes a contract that has financial benefit. So my parental responsibility, would it extend to things like that? Yes. So, and that's why um, at times when children have to get into certain contracts, um, parents would be called upon uh, to actually be the ones to ensure that, they, that the contracts are actually okay and uh, execute the contract on behalf of the child. The law talks about equal parental responsibility. And of course, we know that there's no child that has no father and mother. Two are required for the coming forth of a child. What does this mean, equal parental responsibility? So the issue around equal parental responsibility traces its roots to Article 53 of the Constitution, uh, which is clear that um, parents would have equal parental responsibility. Now, um, the Repealed Children's Act, uh, which uh, was repealed on the 26th of July this year, 2022, did not have a similar provision. The repealed legislation made provision to the extent that um, mothers would have what the Act would call primary parental responsibility. Fathers unless they were married to the mother, would acquire parental responsibility. And the law actually spelled out about five instances in which uh, unmarried fathers would acquire parental responsibility. Uh, so if you previously maintained the child, uh, then you would be deemed to have acquired parental responsibility. If um, you have acknowledged paternity, and acknowledgement of paternity would uh, take many forms, you would be deemed to have acquired parental responsibility. If you have cohabited with the mother for more than uh, an aggregate period of 12 months, uh, you would be deemed to have acquired parental responsibility. So in a nutshell, fathers who are not married to the mother of the child would not automatically have the parental responsibility. They would acquire it by virtue of, you know, in, in different ways, like I've mentioned, uh, previous uh, co cohabitation, maintenance, or maintenance of the so child. And yeah. those are the only ways that a father who was not married to the mother of the child would acquire parental responsibility. Precisely. So in a nutshell, what you're saying is that in 2001, the Children's Act was passed. Yes. And that act provided for a disaggregated form of parental responsibility. Precisely. The mother would have primary responsibility and the father, if he was married to the mother, would also have primary responsibility. Yes. But if he wasn't, he would get secondary responsibility if he met one of those five criteria that you've given. Precisely. Us. However, in between we passed the constitution in yes. 2010. Yes. And this constitution expanded the rights of fathers yes. in the Bill of Rights and yes. gave them equal parental responsibility. However, legislation still retained that provision. Yes. And with the repeal or that the change of the Children's Act in July of this year to the Children's Act 2022, now fathers have equal parental responsibility with mothers, regardless of the status of their marriage. Precisely. Be before you go to the next question, Jean, there is also the issue of uh, the births and deaths uh, registration act. 
Yes. Uh, which again had a similar problematic provision under section 12 yes which required that um in the event that uh, you know uh, the, the moment a child is is born and uh, the birth certificate is being processed section 12 required fathers particularly if they are not married to actually supply evidence that consented to that acquisition of parental responsibility or rather agreed that their name should be put into should be that put notification of birth and then yes. also subsequently into the birth certificate yes and that section has been declared unconstitutional by quite a number of uh, decisions of the court so maybe just to put that out so for clarity let me specify that in the past when a mother was unmarried and she gave birth to a child the legal provision is that you get a notification of birth which then at some point you convert into a birth certificate yes on the notification of birth and on the birth certificate is a provision to state who the parents of the child yes. are yes previously if the mother was unmarried she needed a consent from the father of the child to put their name into that notification of birth and yes. birth certificate as consenting to parental responsibility yes but now that section has been declared unconstitutional and any father can have their name placed into the notification of birth and the birth certificate without the requirement for a written consent precisely although again in practice you'd probably still have uh, people who live uh, in the hang up of the past actually requiring still, that yeah, you yeah. need a written consent but at least uh, it's important for our listeners to know that uh, that section was declared unconstitutional in quite a number of cases now i have a question regarding that particular section there's a general provision in law that you cannot have retroactive application of a particular section of law. Yes. Does that section have retroactive application? Now that uh, for instance let's say I was a father, I um did not meet the categories of um parental responsibility that were there in the 2001 act. Therefore I did not have parental responsibility. In fact the mother was a primary and sole custodian and applier of all the rights and responsibilities yeah. of a parent. And now I've become aware of this change in the law and the fact that I can claim my parental responsibility. Can I claim my parental responsibility? I think you would be able to claim because again uh, remember you're not anchoring your argument on the 2022 legislation you're actually anchoring your claim on the article 53 of the constitution which was enacted in 2010. It's arguable now if if it predates 2010 then that can present another argument as to the retrospectivity of that application. But um my argument would be that uh, it would still apply. uh because that section had been declared unconstitutional and and the constitution had actually confirmed that thank you the law provides for what they call a parental responsibility agreement yes. what is a parental responsibility agreement so a parental responsibility agreement is a carry over from um the 2001 legislation the presupposition is that um i mean the parents were not married and they never get uh to get married but you know the parental responsibilities have to be born at some point and so even in the previous legislation it was allowed that parents could actually agree on quite a number of issues in terms of how the parental responsibility issues would be met uh, for example basic things like visitation rights access rights residence rights uh, who will take care of what obligations and i, I think later on we will probably talk about maintenance so who will maintain uh, a child to what extent and so all this would be reduced into an agreement and um, the parents would then uh, you know sign against the agreement uh, preferably uh, before a children's officer and typically the way these things happen is uh, you get one of the parents uh, in most cases it would be the mother uh, complaining uh, to a children's officer that um, 
the father is not meeting the side of uh, you know parental responsibility the obligations the that obligations. are stated in that agreement yes no even before they get to the agreement and so the children's officer would uh, ordinarily summon the father and when they have their mediation they agree on quite a number of issues and they reduce that in writing so if you looked at the regulations that were developed under the 2001 act they had come up with a template a standard form for which uh, children officers would actually adapt and, and this is just for ease of doing uh, things but if you walked into a law firm for example lawyers would structure that parental responsibility agreement and in the same way if you walked into a legal aid agency uh, they would also structure that agreement but for ease of doing things the regulations under the 2001 had a standard form uh, the expectation then was that um, the parental responsibility agreement would be registered in, in a court registry that was what the law provided in theory but in practice i never got to see any uh, parental responsibility agreement being registered as a matter of fact i worked for a child rights agency and uh, one of the things that i ever did um, many years ago was to do that parental responsibility agreement and i worked uh, to milimani law courts and wanted to register it and uh, the registrar, the registrar was, was a bit was, confused yeah they didn't know because they are used to receiving court cases x versus y here you are you walked in with a parental responsibility agreement and you want it registered they didn't have modalities of that registration that bit uh, of the regulations remained in theory but in practice parental responsibility agreements have just been done executed by the parents and uh, you know they go ahead with them i don't think that the lack of registration has affected their applicability has it precisely so it hasn't affected and that's why i said uh, that just remained in in, in theory but in practice uh, it didn't obtain in the assumption is that in a parental responsibility agreement the parties the people who will sign that responsibility agreement are the mother and the father yes. as the parents of the child is there a way that a person can transmit or transfer their responsibility to another person yes you can actually transmit your parental responsibility uh, to another person and um, we, we can talk about i know you've had a podcast on uh, foster care you've had yes, a podcast i mean you'll probably have discussions around um, guardianship around adoption yes there are legal mechanisms of transferring your parental responsibility to someone else uh, but once you have parental responsibility you retain the parental responsibility through uh, but um, if for example uh, we get into a guardianship deed or um, a surviving parent or a deceased parent actually uh, did a will and they transferred the parental responsibility through uh, you know the instrumentality of guardianship that can still happen So what you're telling me is that for instance um I can write a will and in that will I can specify who would be a guardian to my child a co-guardian with my husband with your for instance spouse, yes. if my surviving spouse is my husband and he was to um survive me I can provide for a, what they call a testamentary guardian yes in my will and state that my share of parental responsibility has been transferred to this individual yes. and they will apply it in co or together with my husband precisely and so a guardianship arrangement can be through a will through a deed or uh, through a court order so courts can still make an order for guardianship and that would essentially then transfer the parental uh, responsibility, responsibility to another individual yes does parental responsibility come to an end for instance when the child grows older or does my parents responsibility over me continue to my death day ideally Uh, when you talk about parental responsibility it should uh, go until the 18th birthday ideally but the law has provisions around extension of parental responsibility 
And again, this is a carryover of the 2001 legislation where the law anticipated that you could have extension of parental responsibility beyond the 18th birthday. And uh, that can be done before the, the, the child attains age 18 or even after. Uh, this was a subject of a very interesting case that was decided incidentally by the current Chief Justice. Uh, and in that case, a girl whose father was actually a lecturer at the university. It's a case that is in the public domain. Uh, you can get it in the Kenya Law Reports. This girl was um, admitted to pursue a course at the University of Nairobi, and uh, the father and the mother had separated. The girl who was now beyond 18 uh, moved to court to make an application that the parental responsibility should be extended beyond the 18th birthday. Initially, the magistrate's courts were a bit hesitant on that uh, because the argument was that this is not basic education. Issues of basic education, you can actually seek for extension of parental responsibility. But Lady Justice Martha Kome, as she then was, because uh, this was a matter in the High Court, actually made an order that the um, parental responsibility should be extended beyond the 18th birthday and uh, that the father should actually pay university fees uh, for this girl. That's a very interesting application where the child is the one who makes a conscious application to have the parental responsibility extended beyond their 18th birthday. Yes. I'd like to ask about situations where you have what they would call a special needs child. So a child yes. who is suffering from a debilitating or condition that limits their ability to function completely and that child reaches the age of majority. Can a parent ask for or request for parental responsibility to be extended beyond this child's 18th birthday, or is the assumption that the parental responsibility will continue? The current act has actually expanded the scope. So, uh, like you've mentioned, an issue of disability, uh, that is one area that um, the act has actually anticipated that parental responsibility would be definitely be extended. In terms of the general advisories that um, courts would apply uh, on a case-by-case -case situation. And therefore, if there is any uh, good reason as to why anybody would uh, want parental responsibility to be extended, then uh, that application should be made in court. It's on a case-by-case. -case. But the Act actually has instances w where parental responsibility should actually be extended, and disability is certainly uh, one of them. Thank you for that. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have a discussion about child custody. Welcome back to the GVA Legal Podcast. Again, on today's episode, we're talking about parental responsibility and child custody. Our guest is Ibrahim Alubala, an advocacy and child rights governance technical specialist at Save the Children. On to child custody. When is a person said to have custody over a child? Yeah, for, for custody, um, the law actually tries to create two distinctions. There's what they call the actual custody, where you you know, you, you have the possession of a child. So you, you actually um, have the physical possession of a child that would uh, be deemed to be actual custody. Courts of law can actually give you what you call legal custody, uh, where you just have parental rights and responsibilities uh, over a child. You might not necessarily have the actual uh, physical possession of that child, but then uh, the law still confers you with the, the, the attendant rights and responsibilities. And so you'd hear at times, uh, especially uh, after a verdict has been given, the law, I mean, the uh, magistrate or the judge saying that uh, you have both legal and, and, and actual custody. So if the court says that, then it means that you actually have the physical possession of the child plus the other legal rights. 
One can also have the legal custody, assuming uh, you are talking about the case, say, of a father. You have the legal custody, but not the actual custody. So it means that any decisions that have to be made uh, regarding that child, those decisions you have definitely have a role to play in them. So let me break this down. When you say there is what they call legal custody and actual custody. Yeah. So legal custody is the ability to make decisions over where the child goes. Yes. The child goes to a particular school, exactly. um, the religion that a child will perhaps practice or go to um, attend on a regular basis. Precisely. That means you have legal custody of the over the child. Yes. You are part and parcel and should be made aware of any decisions on those matters. Exactly. However, what the law calls actual custody is, is in simple terms, who lives with the child? Yes. In whose house is that child found on a regular basis? Precisely. So whoever's house that child lives in has actual custody, actual custody. Of, the, of the child. And let me give an example on legal custody. For instance, I know that to apply for some embassies, like for instance, the American embassy, if you want the child to leave the country, you did require that both the father and mother, if they're living, have to be physically present at the child's application. Yes. So that then they can see that the father has actually consented to that child leaving the country. Yes. And this extends even until the child is 18. So it could even be a child who's leaving for university, but the mother and the father, whether or not they are together, must be physically present unless one of them has both legal and actual custody and they can prove it with a judgment from the court. Precisely. Is there a difference between custody and maintenance? Yeah, yeah. just before we get into that, um, I think it would also be important to let our listeners know that um, the law also excludes uh, certain situations, like if, for example, a child is in a boarding school, uh, in a hostel or in a hospital, uh, that would then not be deemed to be custody. So it's just important uh, for our listeners to know that there's an express provision that actually excludes and it cites those three instances. Let me go back to um, custody now that you've taken us there. Is there a variation? When you were speaking earlier, you spoke about father and mother, and there was an implication that um, actual custody, more often than not, is placed with a mother. Yes. Is that the situation? Yes, that is the situation. In, in practice, and we have very old uh, court decisions that have survived uh, the different uh, legal regimes that we've had. We have a very old case. Uh, I think it was decided way back in the 70s. That was even before the, the Convention on the Rights of the Child was adopted. But the judge then, I think it was Justice Mosdell, um, made a decision that uh, uh, children of tender years are ideally supposed to be under the custody of their mothers. Now, if you have an occasion of looking at the Children's Act, you'll realize that one of the uh, terms that has been defined is tender years. Tender years is defined to be 10 years. So ideally, if we were to go by that decision that, are, like I've said, has survived the different legal regimes that we've had uh, since the 70s, um, it would then mean that uh, ideally children under the age of 10 years are supposed to be under the custody of their mothers unless there is an exceptional reason as to why the father should be granted that actual custody. And um, looking at uh, case law over time, uh, there seems to be an emerging trend that, for example, if the mother is someone of unbecoming behavior character. or character uh, and evidence is led uh, to demonstrate that, then that, that, that actual custody can actually be taken away from her. Or if that mother can physically or rather can abuse the child, uh, 
because we, we know of such kinds of uh, temperamental mothers, the actual custody can actually be taken away from her. So the Children's Act 2022 is a fairly new legislation. We, we'll wait to see what courts will say. Uh, but over time, what has stood the test of time is that provision that children of 10 years ideally supposed to be under the custody of their mother. So a child under 10 years, ideally, um, through practice, has been placed under the care of the mother. Yes. However, the Children's Act 2022 allows for the placing of the child be between either parent. Yes. However, we'll see if that that piece of legislation will be applied as is or whether there will be um, a reliance on the previous practice yes. of placing a child of tender years, that's a child under 10 years old, with the mother primarily. Precisely. But also maybe also the key thing also is the best interest of the child. So the court will actually look at where are the best interests of the child served and make that decision. So quite a number of considerations, but we'll wait to see what courts say moving forward. Back to my old question. So, what is the difference between custody and maintenance? So maintenance is uh, the supply of the necessaries of life. Think about the what we used to call the basic needs, clothing, uh, shelter, food. Uh, the Act talks about protection. All that bundle of uh, supplies, uh, whoever is supposed to supply that, I mean, if that is supplied, then we'll be talking about maintenance. Can you get someone to give you maintenance and what process would you go through and how would you enforce it? So ideally, if parents are not living together, because if they are under the same roof, then uh, they should sort between themselves who will buy food and who will buy clothes and all that. I mean, the presumption generally is that uh, if you are under the same roof, then... Um, There's a local agreement on who will yeah, live what. Yeah, nobody wants to get so entangled in terms of what, what happens. However, if you separate, what then happens? If you separate, then um, courts of law would definitely want to um, give directions in terms of how that would be done. Ideally, parents are encouraged to do the parental responsibility agreements because part of what the agreements would then uh, state is who provides what. But if they don't, then courts of law would make a decision on who provides what. Ideally, uh, it's supposed to be a 50-50 arrangement, and that is in an ideal situation. But the practice has been that uh, courts would always ask for what you call affidavit of means. So every parent would um, document their income and expenditure, uh, and, and, and then courts would look at that and then decide, okay, uh, you can provide for one, two, three, and the other parent can provide for four, five, six. So um, that is normally at the discretion of the court. But uh, the standard practice is that they have been guided by, I mean, they would always request for parents, uh, and this assuming that they are before a court of law, to prepare what they call affidavit of means. To, uh, affidavit of means would just spell out that this is my income, this is my expenditure, this is what I'm left with, so this is what I'm, um, I, I can, you know, uh, provide in terms of maintenance. But curiously, if you look at the Children's Act, affidavit of means is not mentioned anywhere. So this is, uh, again, something that is born out of practice because um, the Act would simply talk about uh, equal parental responsibility. That would ideally mean 50-50. If a school fees is 50,000, then one parent pays 25, 25, the other one pays 25. 25. But life is not like that. So courts of law would get to a place where they balance and see say, who has the ability to pay yes. the majority of yes. it, and then they would apportion that um, payment in the fashion that meets the, the means of each of those parents. Precisely. Now, we'd spoken about maintenance, and now I want to switch over to custody and talk about what the court calls custody orders. We've said that for a child of tender years, um, primarily 
you'll be placed under the custody of your mother. So you would be physically with your mother, but your father has legal custody over you. Are there situations where custody is shared, joint custody? Yes, there are instances where joint custody um, is granted. Uh, and this is, is mainly where uh, both parents can demonstrate that uh, they can take care of the child and uh, they ideally have to be involved in the development of the child. So uh, we've seen instances where courts can even indicate that, um, especially during school holidays, that the parents would share uh, the custody 50-50 so that uh, if it's four weeks break, the child stays for two weeks with the mother, then the two weeks with the father. Again, that's just the pragmatic decisions that the courts have to make. Because if I'm a father to a child, then uh, ideally the court begins from the presupposition that uh, the child needs you know, uh, paternal care and paternal guidance and all that, uh, just like the child requires maternal guidance and all that. So courts would also balance out. Unless there is a, there is a very good reason as to why courts should not you know, grant that sort of joint actual custody, um, for example, if the father is, if uh, that custody would pose a danger to the child, then of course, uh, one parent is one given parent preferential custody. Yeah. It's, and if there is a conflict, for instance, between joint custodians, because life is messy, yes. there we might set out um, to um, follow the order of the court and split the care of this child 50 50. But there may be situations where one parent feels like they are either taking on um, a bulk of the responsibility or another feels like they're being um, frustrated in the access to the child. What happens if you have a conflict between joint custodians? The issue about children is that it's uh, these matters are living matters, and um, a decision is not just made once and it's cast in stone. It's not like where we, you know, we we the court grants you rights over a land and you know you you live with it in perpetuity. Uh, if there are any change of circumstances, one party can then approach the court for a variation of that court order, uh, so that um, nuances actually reflected in the new court order. For example, a, a parent's um, uh, fortunes might dwindle, financial fortunes, and uh, for example, there's a maintenance order that has been made. That parent can actually approach the court and uh, seek to have a review of those orders based on the change of circumstances. And the court would give you audience and uh, probably make appropriate orders based on the changes. That brings us to the end of this episode. I'd like to thank my guest, Ibrahim Alubala, an advocacy and child rights governance technical specialist at Save the Children. Thank you so much for your excellent insights. Thank you very much. Before I end this episode, I'd like to let our listeners know that if you'd like to negotiate or renegotiate a custody agreement, or if you'd like to draft a parental responsibility agreement, we have a team of lawyers who can help. You can call us at Gikera and Badgama Advocates on 0718 870167 or you can pay us a visit at our head office in Nairobi. Our address is 56 Muthithi Road Westlands. We also have branches in Mombasa and Nanyuki. And if you just want to connect with us or give us episode suggestions, you can send us an email. Our email address is info at gvalawfirm.com. You can also follow Gikera and Badgama Advocates on social media. Find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook as GVA Law Firm. Thank you for joining us on the GBA Legal Podcast. Let's get free.